Today we are in Revelation. We are in chapter 7. We are continuing our series on cultivating a culture of discipleship. We're only one sermon into it, uh, but some people told me yesterday, last week was really good. So here's hoping that uh, this week will be just as encouraging and just as helpful and just as exalting to God and, and His Son uh, as the previous one was. And uh, we're in chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 9. We're skipping over a few verses here. Um, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord! who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, so the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are strangers and aliens in this world precisely because our citizenship is in heaven. Help us to understand and to believe your word so that we are filled with wisdom and understanding in order to bear good fruit while we live in this world, awaiting the redemption of our bodies as well as the renewal of the earth. And we ask this in the name of Christ who accomplishes all these things. Amen. Last week, we began uh, with that question of why make disciples, and we looked at Titus chapter 2. And, excuse me, as I was working on it this week, that sort of was that question of, well, why am I actually doing two sermons on this? One question. And that's because there are really two kinds of answers to that one question of why make disciples. I think this is clarified for me in my head by a book by Matt Chandler called The Explicit Gospel. And he talks about the gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air. And I I tend to think of it this way. Um, There's land war. There's battles in the ground. There's battles in the street. And... 
Titus 2 really addresses that battle on the ground. Uh, that, you know, it's you and it's them. And the, the, the aspects of discipleship that are pertinent there are very different. And so it's important for us to hear about the gospel on the ground or discipleship in the ground, discipleship in the streets. But we can't lose sight of the fact that there's also an air war that goes on. And successful war take, requires both battle on the ground, battle in the air. Uh, but the, ba- the gospel in the air is more not the street-level aspects of the gospel, but rather the cosmic story, uh, the wholeness of this picture. And so if we want to understand discipleship rightly, uh, we need to understand both of these things. And sort of the window that, that I... Th- I'm using in my head anyway to to understand some of this is uh, kind of back to almost every World War II movie you've ever seen. What almost inevitably happens is some soldier reaches into his jersey or his wallet or his pocket and he pulls out a picture. And what that picture is are the people he loves back home. And so this person is fighting for something and sometimes it's the intangible country for which they fight, uh, but sometimes it's just simply the people they love. And so even as we're asking this bigger question of why make disciples, there's this smaller question, I think, of who are you fighting for? And that gets us to the gospel in the air. The context that we have here in Revelation 7 is that this takes place, uh, or is given to us, uh, between the sixth and the seventh seals. And we're not going to get into eschatology today. Uh, there's a lot that would hinge upon uh, your eschatological or end times uh, understanding. Uh, so, but we're not really going to get too much into that. Uh, but this is the second of two visions that John has as he sees this pause between the sixth and the seventh. And we can see that the key for this is that, the, that phrase, after this. We see that in verse 1, and then we see it again in verse 9, and that is one of those little key little markers that says, not just uh, sequentially in time, but really new vision. Okay? <clears throat> There's a lot of ways that we could possibly understand these two very different groups. The one that's in the first part of this chapter and the one that we're going to look at most of our time in the second part of this chapter. I think probably the best way of looking at this is the idea of the remnant versus the Gentiles. Or another way, perhaps, of looking at it is the church militant, the church on earth, versus the church triumphant, that which is in heaven. We see that in the first part of this, uh, the first group, uh, they are sealed against harm that happens here on earth. And so that is a picture of the church militant, a a church in danger, a church persecuted, a church in trouble. And that's why they're sealed, so that they're going to be preserved from that trouble that they're going to experience. It's similar to what we see in Ezekiel chapter 9, 
the Lord tells the prophet who has been taken by the Spirit all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem and the temple. And he says to the angels, Ezekiel witnesses this, um, the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And so uh, those who are agonizing over the apostasy and wickedness that was still taking place in Jerusalem, okay, uh, they were to be sealed so that they would be not destroyed in the judgment that was going to come in 586 but rather they would be preserved. And so we're to understand this first group as being on earth and God is sealing them so that they will be preserved from the hardship that was coming. That's the first group. Now let's focus on the second group for the rest of the way going here. After this, I looked. So we have the second vision. And this time, instead of it being 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, he says, a great multitude no one could number. This is beyond numbering this large group of people that, that John is amazed to see. This is an illusion to the covenant with Abraham that we find in Genesis 15. Because what is said there is that God was going to make Abraham's offspring like the stars in the sky. And, and that's the stars that no one could number. And so this, in a sense, is an indication that, that God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled, has been fulfilled. Uh, that he has spiritual descendants beyond numbering. Beyond anyone's capacity to count. I mean, have you tried to count stars? I can't count stars. I lose track of where I was. Not the numbers, but which stars I've counted. There's just so many of them. It's hard. It's easier here than it was in Florida to count stars. Um, but it's even, it's even in, in upstate New York, it's just amazing. But then you have the satellites going in there, so that's messing you up. <clears throat> but they move. <coughs> And, but this is one of these windows in the text uh, that reminds us that what is going on here is part of this great story of redemption that stretches from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In other words, uh, the Bible is not simply about your personal salvation. It includes that, but it is not limited to that. Okay? It's also about God's great plan, God's great story, but we're brought into it by faith. Okay, actually, we're brought into the good part of it by faith. Uh, by unbelief, people remain in the not-so-good part of it, okay? because there's also the reality of judgment within that story. Okay? But we have the macro, uh, sorry, the micro level, the street level, and we also have the macro level, the air perspective. This great story that God brings individuals into. This great community that God brings individuals into. And so the, the scriptures encompass both and, as it's not one or the other. 
This great multitude, it says, is from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. It is multinational, multilingual, multi just about everything you could imagine it is. And this, of course, is just an echo of what we also read in Revelation 5. And the reality that Christ has not purchased all of these peoples, but has purchased out of all of these peoples some for himself. But what we recognize here is that these people, even though they are very different, and they're different enough even as John looks at them, okay? If this is the heavenly church triumphant, which I believe it is, and I'll tell you why in just a little bit, it, it does, has not lost its distinctions. There still are people with different skin tones. There are men and women. Uh, so this is the full spread of the church. And they are at peace with one another. They're not fighting but they're worshiping. In other words, what I want you to understand is that even though they are different, they're doing the same thing. And they are at peace with one another. Their differences that exist between them are not separating them. It's not like there's the people from Poland room and the people from Ghana room and over here you have the people from Vietnam room or if you could get even more broken down by you know that you know Rwanda doesn't have a, a special room for the the Tutsi and another room for the Hutu which hate each other on earth Jesus has, deals with all of these differences, all these old hatreds, so that now people who are in Christ are able to live at peace. John can tell the differences about, between them. These differences, I say, they don't disappear, but they no longer are significant enough to matter. Let's go back to the illustration of war and conflict. It, it doesn't matter who is in your foxhole as long as they're wearing the same uniform as you. You don't ask what language their people used to speak. You don't look at the, the color or tone of their skin, the shades of their skin, and say, oh, well, this guy's acceptable in my foxhole. No, they're on your side. They're on your team. You move forward. But churches and denominations are still struggling with this. And it's not just in America. It's everywhere. Because old prejudices die hard. Because they're, they're a function of indwelling sin, and therefore they die hard. And what, part of what discipleship is intended to do is to deal with that struggle to get along. And so that men are getting along with women and women are getting along with men and all the way across the board. We need discipleship in order to get along because we're all sinners in need of grace. And so last week I gave you six answers to that question. This week you got a, you're easy, it's only five. And the first answer really is make disciples so we can worship Jesus together. Not apart, 
We make disciples so that we can worship Jesus together. So as we kind of move farther in this text, we see that they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Again, the consistency with chapter 5. Okay, But their focus is on the God the Father and the Son, who is identified here as the Lamb who was slain. And because it is before the throne, that is the reason why I'm saying that this is the church in heaven, this is the church triumphant, this is the church that has vanquished the enemy. But let's recognize something here. Throughout this text that I read, 9 through the end of the chapter, this word throne shows up seven times. There's a message in that. Throne, throne, throne. What are thrones for? They recognize kingdoms. What kingdom is this? This is the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the kingdom of the lamb that we're talking about here. We have been delivered, okay, this is the big picture story, we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, as it talks about in Colossians chapter 1. And we have to understand salvation this way, not simply in the personal aspect of it, but that larger aspect of it, of a shift of kingdoms, brought out of one kingdom of wickedness and put into another kingdom of righteousness so that we can behold the Son and we can serve Him and worship Him as our King. We're not in charge. King Jesus is in charge. And so salvation is meant to be understood as deliverance from one kingdom, a dark kingdom, into another kingdom, a light kingdom. There were uh, some new tribes missionaries by the name of Martin and Gracia Burnham, and some of you have probably heard of them because they made the national news at one point because they served in the Philippines. And they had been taken by Muslim terrorists and uh, kidnapped for ransom to earn money. And, of course, missions organizations tend not to have money to pay <laughs> these fees, uh, so to speak, the, the ransoms. And so they were, in a sense, in a kingdom of darkness. They were prisoners. They wanted to be free. And they ended up, there ended up being a rescue mission. And in the course of that rescue mission, Martin was shot and died, uh, but Gracia was shot and lived. They're both delivered from that kingdom of darkness. Uh, one immediately went to before the throne, and the other one is now among us, continuing to make known what God has done. But you need, we need to think of salvation in part as a rescue mission, where he rescues us from oppression. The power of the cross is applied for people's rescue as they believe in the proclamation of Jesus as king. That's a message that must be believed, uh, must be responded to, uh, not simply assented to, like, oh yeah, that's true. But that's my king. That's my savior. I believe he did that. 
That is what faith includes. I'm trusting in him. I'm trusting in that. As the Westminster standards say, resting in the Savior. Discipleship, then, really teaches people how to live in the new kingdom under this new king, even though we do it in the presence of our enemies. Because this does not come naturally to us. I've reached a, a, well, our family has reached a, a milestone. We have a driver, a new driver. And, and uh, mostly, but not exclusively, I have the um, distinct privilege of trying to teach this person how to drive. They have learned the rules of the road. They took their exam. They passed their exam. Okay, but now they're learning how to how to see. It's not just about head. Now they have to learn how to manually drive a vehicle and deal with oncoming traffic and intersections and. All of that stuff that does not necessarily come naturally to them. Uh, but it's not simply that. They also have to deal with the crazy people on the roads <laughs> and learning how to recognize when there's going to be a danger situation possibly coming and, and how to respond to that. That doesn't come naturally. But they all has, also have to deal with the reality of their own crazy person inside them because all of us have crazy people inside of us called indwelling sin. We get impatient on the road. We want to speed. Uh, We want to uh, have the rules apply to everybody but ourselves. You see, that stop sign, that's not there for me. It's there for everybody else. And so I get to teach a driver, hopefully well, about these things. And that's that's a picture of discipleship. Preparing this person to drive, not in some imaginary fairy tale world, but in the real world. That's discipleship. We do this in between the times of our redemption and the consummation of Christ when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemptions of our bodies. Uh, it's, again, create uh, redemption on the large scale. We're going to receive our resurrected bodies. But he's also talking about the fact that creation is going to be set free. Creation is going to be renewed. Right now we're broken people living in a broken world. Uh, But there's coming a day when we will be right people living in a right world. But it's not just the saints who are around this throne. We see the elders. We see the angels. We see the four creatures encircling the Father and the Son in order to worship Him. And I missed a whole lot right there. I just jumped over a gigantic bunch of stuff. Okay. Let's see if I can pull this out of a hat. All right. So, we see them all worshiping the Father and the Son. And so, it's a God and Christ-centered worship that is taking place. 
Okay, uh, but they're also joining with the rest of the heavenly citizens. Okay, it's not just humanity. In, in our worship, we participate in the heavenly worship that is going on. So we don't just need to learn from discipleship um, that we can worship, but we need to learn how to worship. We recognize that we worship in part because of our salvation. Part of the cry that comes out is salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Father and the Son together are to be worshipped and glorified, as it says in the Nicene Creed. We see that the Lamb who was slain is no mere creature precisely because He is able to be worshipped in the presence of the Father without chaos breaking out, without judgment breaking out. We see the same thing in Revelation 5 as they worship the Lamb. It's not idolatry. Precisely because the Lamb is the God-man. The eternal Son who has taken on flesh. The Lamb accepts this worship with with the Father. And so what we find here is that this is, in a sense, if we're going back to relational wisdom and thinking about it in these terms, we are finding ultimate God awareness and ultimate God engagement. These people, this multitude, are aware of who God is, their Savior, as well as their Creator, and they are engaging that God first off in worship, but also in service as we'll see in just a bit. So, discipleship keeps our focus on Christ. Discipleship keeps our focus on worship of that very Christ. Not just the law, not just on being good. For instance, we see that one of the purposes Jesus came, Jesus relates this to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus came to create worshipers of the Father. And there's a right way to worship the Father in spirit and truth, and there are wrong ways to worship the Father. And so part of what discipleship is, is learning how to worship the Father through the Son. So that's actually your third reason. Make disciples so people know how to worship. But I want to give you the second one that I skipped over by mistake. We also make disciples because Jesus rescues us for his kingdom. There's a slight change in there that took place this morning, for those of you who follow notes. We make disciples because Jesus rescues us for his kingdom, and we also make disciples so people know how to worship him. Let's continue with that idea of salvation belongs to our Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We recognize that salvation is a gift. It is the gift of the Father, it is the gift of the Son. It is given to us through the Holy Spirit, who happens not to be mentioned here, but that's okay. But the point is, salvation belongs to the Lord. What he is hearing okay, is 
the New Testament fuller revelation of what we find in Jonah 2. Okay, Jonah, think about Jonah for a minute. He's in the belly of the, of the great big fish, and he finally repents, and he pulls all of these things from all these different psalms that he's got in his head, and, and he has this incredible prayer, and the culmination of this prayer is, salvation belongs to the Lord. Why I'm saying that this is a progress, a progress in the revelation is, is that this vision is, is showing us that the Lord is God and the Lamb who was slain. That's who salvation belongs to. And when we think about discipleship in that context, we're reminded that discipleship is not about earning your way. It's not about meriting your salvation, and it's not about keeping your salvation. It's not about proving your worth. It's not about proving your goodness. But what we see is that discipleship explains and applies the salvation that Christ has earned and calls you to believe. And so a salvation, I'm sorry, a discipleship that just focuses on what to do without what Christ has done is a false discipleship. We need to remember the gospel logic as Sinclair Ferguson talks about. First comes what Jesus has done, then comes what we do. But even as we talk about what we do, we remember that it's supposed to be done in the power that Jesus provides. It's not simply, hey, we've gotten this gift and now we do our own thing. We're on our own to walk with Jesus. He helps us by grace to walk with him. And so discipleship has to talk about the dimensions, the realities of our salvation, how we were saved, why we were saved, what it means that we're saved. And of course, calls you to believe those things, as we've said already. What is further said about this multitude by the elders is that they are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There it is. There's that faith receiving the application of the salvation. Uh, The blood cleansed the robes which were dirty because they washed them by faith, so to speak. But here again, the Scripture I love this. Sometimes uses these metaphors, these pictures that don't always make sense. When's the last time you saw blood purify anything? If you're a parent, you know how hard it is to get blood stains out of your children's clothes. Or maybe I should say, if you're a mother. <laughs> okay? I, mean, I know how to do laundry, and I occasionally do laundry, but usually when I do laundry, it's because everyone else has gone away. Okay? They're not there, and it's just my laundry that I'm doing. Um, Maybe some of you dads do most of the laundry. I don't know. But moms, in particular, understand how hard it is to get blood stains out of clothes. Blood stains material, not cleanses material. And yet we find, again, this because it's about Jesus, everything is turned upside down, and this blood cleanses, not stains. Because these robes are not scarlet, they're white. 
They're clean. They're pure. So, faith applies that death of Jesus to our personal sins, our robes, so that they become clean. And so discipleship is partially about learning how to do that. It's calling you to repent. It's teaching you how to repent, how to believe in the midst of the particular circumstances and messes that you find yourselves in because of your own sin, which may be different than my sin, but is still sin. So discipleship ultimately cannot be divorced from faith any more than it can be divorced from grace, precisely because discipleship is, ulti- is including a call to trust. And so reason number four, why to make disciples? Make disciples so people understand faith and salvation. The vision shifts slightly in a way that's, that can easily be confusing to people. Okay? Because, wait a minute, they're in heaven. They're before the throne, and yet it shifts to their heavenly safety and their future, uh, sorry, as well as their uh, future earthly safety in their pilgrimage. Because look in verse 18, 16 rather. They shall. The sun shall not strike them. The Lord, uh, sorry, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. These are all future tenses. He will guide them. God will wipe away every tear. So on the one hand, it seems like this is a heavenly, a heavenly group, and yet God is talking about these future protections that are going to take place. Easy for this to be a, a head-scratcher, isn't it? But we should remember Ephesians chapter 2 to help us un, un, unpack this and understand this. We're reminded in verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And, here's the key part I want you to hear, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not will seat us, but he has seated us in the heavenly places. Because of our union with Christ, we are, in one sense, part of that multitude that's come out of the tribulation, even as we still live and breathe on earth. And so we're secure through the struggles we still experience. And now, remember, uh, John was used to the desert, just like us. And so he knows what scorching heat is. 
<laughs> and he knows how necessary it is to be uh, safe from that scorching heat. Uh, Jade and I walked down to the wash the other day because we wanted to see the damage that the ash had done from the fires in the wash. And, and uh, it was not a particularly hot day, but still I was like, man, that sun feels hot after being in New York for a while. Okay? He's a protection from that sun. He's a provision in the midst of um, hunger and thirst. And so, but when we, we look at this song that's here in verses 15, 16, and 17, what we find is uh, that they're really drawn from, the, from Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 49. We see a lot of these things there. And so, again, we see that consistency, in this case, with the Old Testament and New Testament. They're not having different messages, but these Old Testament promises are being fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so part of discipleship is helping people to understand that too. The promises as well as the faithfulness of God. And why do we need to remember the faithfulness of God? It's because Scripture often warns us of the danger of forgetting God. A danger that is a real danger, not a hypothetical danger, because Scripture is written to sinful people. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart and take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We're prone for this. And so we see in Deuteronomy 6, verse 12, Take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But it's not just Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 8. Verse 11, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. But that's not all. Verse 14, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then if you scoot on down to verse 19, And if you forget the Lord your God and go after the other gods and serve them and worship them. So three times in Deuteronomy 8, Moses talks about them forgetting the Lord. That means it's a very present danger. And we see in Hosea 13 that that danger came to pass for most of the people of Israel. Talks a lot about forgetfulness in Hosea, but I'm just going to bring up Hosea 13. When they had grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. They're proud. Therefore, they forgot me. And we see in Deuteronomy, that's often what it was connected to. When, when, when you prosper in the land, don't forget me. Don't become proud. Continue to worship. And that's the very thing they did, is they became proud, forgot to worship, and turned to the idols of the nations. 
And so we are prone, brothers and sisters, to forget about the faithfulness of God. We're prone to think that that faithfulness is more about what we did as opposed to what he does. And so the fifth reason we make disciples is so people remember the promises that he keeps. I guess I should add the warnings that he, that he makes too, but that's, I'm not I'm adding the sixth point today. We're good. It's enough. So waging a successful war requires winning both the ground and air battles, not forsaking one for the other. They are seen, they're to be understood to complement each other. Matt Chandler in the explicit gospel warns that being focused only on the ground, the gospel on the ground leads to a self-focused, privatized form of Christianity that is no Christianity at all. However, focusing on the gospel in the air tends to lead to a social gospel, which also is no gospel. Discipleship teaches both the cosmic realities of faith and the street-level use of faith so that we live as individual Christians within a redeemed community that Jesus is transforming. And so the gospel in the air, this cosmic view, reveals that we fight not simply for our families, but we fight for the Father, and we fight for His Son, who is the Lamb who was crucified for us, and we fight for the kingdom that He gives us freely. So, that is why we make disciples. That is for whom we make disciples. So our big idea this week is the same as it was last week, because it's the same commitment, same conviction rather. We make disciples because God's goal is to glorify his beloved son in the midst of the people he has rescued and transformed. Next week we'll get to the second conviction uh, about discipleship. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I said a lot today. (laughs) Help them not to be overwhelmed. But I do ask that your spirit would be at work within us, within the leadership and all of us, that as we reckon with these convictions, they would not simply be theoretical, but that we would see they are meant to shape our practice. And so that we would evaluate our practices in discipleship on the basis of these convictions. Help us to recognize where we've kind of missed the boat so that we can get things right. Father, help us by your Spirit to become a a community that is known for discipleship. And not a fake discipleship, but what the Bible says is discipleship. Continue to reform us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.